From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. We are officially two weeks away from Election Day, and healthcare has been a central part of the conversation from Congress to the White House. So today, I want to talk about what's really at stake in this election and do even a little bit of predicting about what the potential outcomes of the election might mean for healthcare. To have that conversation, I've brought Dan Diamond to Radio Advisory. Dan is a political reporter and an advisory board alum who investigates healthcare politics and policy with a special focus on the Trump administration and the COVID-19 outbreak. We are obviously going to be talking about politics here, but just a reminder, advisory board is a nonpartisan institution. Well, Dan, welcome to Radio Advisory. I have to say, before we start, I've been listening to you in my in my ears all morning. I am truly obsessed with your latest episode of Pulse Check. <laughs> it is such a genius idea. I have to I have to talk about it. You quite literally compare the White House's own protocols for COVID safety with I'm not kidding here, the Bachelorette. How did you come up with that idea? I, I can take very little credit for that. So just as you know, uh, with your own brilliant producers like Joe and Chris, my producer at Politico, Jeremy Siegel, who had never watched The Bachelorette before, but saw my tweets about how COVID-focused the episode was, he's the guy who pitched the idea. I was set to talk about like President Trump and his drug cards, but <laughs> Jeremy thought that it would be be a fun topic, and I think it was. I honestly have no idea how you and your colleagues have been keeping up with the pace of change over the last couple of weeks. But I think this sense of whiplash is something that all of us are feeling at this point. And we've known for a while that coronavirus was going to be a key focus area for this election. However, an open seat on the Supreme Court sort of brought the future of the ACA and abortion rights squarely into focus. Let's start there. How has Justice Ginsburg's passing changed the debate about healthcare? Well, I think it changed the debate by forcing all attention on what it would mean to have a Supreme Court opening this year, this close to an election, and with so many different important issues facing the high court. And that's part of the reason why Democrats made the past uh, number of days so focused on healthcare specifically, that there's an ACA lawsuit right in front of the court only a week after the election. So I think that was the immediate implication. And then there are all kinds of long-term impacts of having the court tip uh, further to the right. Mm -hmm. And that 6-3 conservative majority, as you said, sort of brings the fate of the ACA once again into a place of uncertainty. But I think when I'm what I'm hearing from healthcare leaders is this thought that it's an all or nothing play, that the law stands or it's struck down. But I actually don't think that that's the case. What are some of the possible outcomes that you're tracking for the ruling? Well, Ray, I think there are a range of outcomes, but the most likely one in the minds of many people I talk to is that the court does turn this back either all the way or, or part of the way. Mm -hmm. Democrats have made this a big issue. They tried to focus the Amy Coney Barrett hearings on health care and the ACA. They brought photos of constituents with pre-existing conditions. They tried to pin down 
her stance based on her own criticism of uh, rulings on the ACA before. But there are legal experts like Nick Bagley at the University of Michigan who make the case, and some Republican legal scholars would agree, that the challenge is pretty weak. It turns on whether the entire law should fall because Congress zeroed out the individual mandate three years ago. And then the claim that getting rid of that mandate, that all the other stuff in the ACA, including things that have nothing to do with it, like the CMS Innovation Center, that all of those things are unconstitutional too, it doesn't tread water for a lot of legal experts. Now, I guess the issue is it carried enough water to make it all the way to the Supreme Court with some conservative judges agreeing along the way. But a high court deciding that the entire ACA should fall over this when the court has turned back other challenges that were thought to be stronger. I just don't know if that's in the cards. I, I couldn't agree more. I don't think that unwinding a decade of established health policy is all that likely. But to your point, it was certainly a moment, I think actually for both sides, to align their base towards a conversation about health policy that they would have wanted to have had we not been hit with a pandemic. And so we saw this kind of whiplash moment where the ACA became center stage and still is to a certain extent. But then, you know, a week after Justice Ginsburg's passing, of course, we all know the president of the United States and most of his staff came down with COVID-19. You've been tracking the administration's response to the virus from the beginning. I want to know has the approach or the conversation around coronavirus changed at all since his diagnosis? Definitely. I, I think the president's diagnosis jump-started a really unusual dynamic in media coverage and political strategy. It took over the news cycle in a way that coronavirus hadn't really done in months. The outbreak had faded in some respects to background noise, where we just got used to the fact that this virus is with us. I think the president's diagnosis also became the most visible reminder of how badly his administration has handled the virus. And beyond the news cycle, did it change anything in terms of this administration's actual response to the pandemic? <laughs> um, I mean, you think it would. You, you think that it would lead <laughs> to masks around the White House. But initially, there was still hesitation to take some very basic steps. Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff, walked out to brief reporters and he wasn't wearing a mask. That's my right. colleagues at Politico, I think it might have been my colleague Sarah Overmall, uh, asked the White House, were they going to change their practices? And the press guy said, no, like, yeah. we're, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Now, some of that has changed in the intervening days and weeks just because so many people ended up getting sick. But the White House put all of its money on this rapid testing plan and that clearly wasn't sufficient, that the social distancing and, and the mask wearing and all the boring things that you and me and others are doing, those are important because it's the only way that we know to stop the virus. And this is exactly why, despite the kind of changing narrative, this feeling of whiplash, coronavirus and the response to the crisis is the defining healthcare issue and maybe even the defining issue period of this election you spend your time investigating the Trump administration's handling to the crisis. In your mind, is there, you know, one story or angle that you want to make sure healthcare <laughs> leaders 
keep at the front of their minds in the coming weeks? Is this a chance to plug my own reporting? It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will I will try and, and rise above my own petty desires because I think while I cover the ins and outs of Washington and how the administration is responding, I, I do think that healthcare leaders have concerns that go well beyond whatever's happening in like a dark corner of the West Wing. And coronavirus is is the great leveler, right? Like it affects all parts of our society. Now, yes, if you have resources and means, you're probably better protected. You might have better health care. But I'm, I'm coming to you today, Ray, from Minnesota. And I know that there are low-income people that I'm hoping to go visit while I'm out here to do a little reporting who work in meatpacking plants or work mm-hmm. in jobs where they could not socially distance. And if I'm a health leader surviving this pandemic and, and having my organization try and ride through it, I'm going to be really worried about what happens to those people who are more on the fringes, who might be especially at risk from COVID-19 and will continue to face challenges because of the risk that they've exposed themselves to this year. Well, if you're not going to brag about yourself, I I will do it for you uh, because I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't say that, you know, one of the key pieces that we need to keep in the front of healthcare leaders' minds is the fact that Trump officials interfered with CDC reports on COVID-19, which, of course, has a direct implication for how frontline physicians and nurses and APPs are working with their patients as they combat this virus every day. Okay, well, since you brought it up, I'm happy to go down that path. Um, I have chronicled extensively different ways that the Trump administration has sought to interfere in the response. And that effort to change the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly reports which are like these sacred scientific texts. I don't know how many of them you've read, but I I remember well before arriving at Politico, when I was back at the advisory board, Mm -hmm. reading these very dry but important reports about the spread of Ebola or who was most likely to be at risk from the spread of some contagious disease. And Trump appointees got really upset this year because they thought that those dry scientific reports were undermining the president's message about how covid wasn't that severe. So yeah, that's a huge freaking deal. I mean, if the scientists can't report accurate, objective information during a crisis, that puts everybody at risk. And then there are other aspects of the response too, where political leaders weighed in heavily on what the scientific guidance should be. I also think, Ray, some of this might go a little too far. Sometimes the scientists don't get it completely right. Mm -hmm. And every single time that CDC or FDA were seen to maybe be stepped on, sometimes the agencies stepped on themselves. Hmm. There was a moment a couple of weeks ago uh, where CDC put up guidance on whether coronavirus spreads in the air. And that, that guidance very quickly got pulled off the website and immediately people were jumping to conspiracy theories about Trump administration officials must've pulled it off. No, the CDC screwed up. They put up this guidance too early before it had gone through the agency's own internal uh, checking process. So I I think I want to always be careful as a reporter that I'm focusing attention on the right stories, but not every story plays into the meta conspiracy narrative that sometimes emerges, (laughs) and especially this close to an election. I'm aware of the fact that we've been talking about a lot of issues that we probably wouldn't have talked about if we had had this conversation in January. 
In fact, before the pandemic, I think the major healthcare story about the election all came down to costs, particularly whether a candidate could lower the cost of healthcare that individual Americans are feeling every day. Now, I certainly think that's still important, but my question is, has that conversation taken a backseat? It's definitely taken a backseat for me. I mean, I barely have time to track any issue that isn't COVID-19 these days, but I I do think COVID-19 has refracted those issues. So we're still talking about cost. We're just now talking about what is the cost of care for a COVID patient or what will a COVID patient or any of us have to pay out of pocket to get access to therapeutics or vaccines. So it is it is focused all of the issues that persisted and have have been with us in politics and healthcare, but it has made it just around this one issue for now. Now, Eventually, I think that will break. But from our stance at Politico, it's COVID-19 first, last and everything. And then like all the other stuff only of time can can fit around. I know that my reporting agenda for 2020 was vastly different than what it has turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do think there are still some stories that are are relevant for this moment, you know, two weeks before the election. I think I saw some reporting that you had done about a drug card plan that the current administration is trying to very, very quickly act on in the weeks before the election. Can you tell me about that? So a couple of weeks ago, President Trump gave a speech touting all of the different healthcare actions that he had taken. He titled it his America First Healthcare Plan. He rattled off a bunch of different initiatives that have nothing to do with coronavirus. And the administration truly has tried to work on uh, addressing HIV, addressing kidney care, insulin, all, all these different objectives that his team for probably about a year now has argued, we might not have the Affordable Care Act, but when you add all of these different initiatives up, that's a healthcare plan. That, mm-hmm. that is what the president has been able to do. Ahead of that speech, President Trump was casting about for even more things that he could tout and promise, especially in the days and weeks leading up to the election. So his team settled on an idea that had been kicking around for a few months, this idea that seniors would get discounts on buying drugs, that they would have almost like a credit card that they could take to the pharmacy and have $100, $200 on this, and it would help cover the costs of their drug uh, payments. Originally, the Trump administration had wanted the pharma industry to pay for this. It was a negotiation that was going on across the summer. It fell apart, partly because pharma didn't want to be seen as helping the president with this potentially branded card. The joke was that these were going to be Trump cards and maybe have the president's signature or something on them. The pharma industry got spooked and said, we don't want to be involved in this, especially so close to the election. But the president's team had thought about this idea and a month ago and thinking about what the president could tease as a new initiative, they settled on this. But instead of having pharma pay for it, Medicare uh, and its trust fund, one of its trust funds would cover the cost. So my reporting, I guess about a week ago, 10 days ago, was on the hurried attempt to make this real before the election, which raises a lot of practical questions as well as ethical ones, too. And Democrats have already opened a probe into why is this being done? Is this an appropriate use of spending? Trump officials have argued that it is a test of the Medicare program. And listeners will know because of the Innovation Center and even 
other authorities that CMS has, it can do these big tests where some people might get certain access to a treatment or a certain payment model could be tested. The administration is arguing this is a test of the Medicare program. Do these Hmm. drug cards increase the ability of people to keep taking their medicine? But the way that it's been structured, I've talked to numerous experts and people in the administration, too, who say this isn't really a test. This is just an effort to get as much money out the door as possible ahead of the election. So it's been very controversial, and it's been something that I'm continuing to report on. And again, comes back to some of the legacy challenges with healthcare that I think we would have talked about. Drug costs, especially in the senior population, certainly being one of those. But to your point, clearly a politically motivated move. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. There's a lot at stake for healthcare in the 2020 elections. For a breakdown of the key issues, latest developments, and insights on how policy changes will impact healthcare leaders, go to advisory.com slash 2020 elections. There you'll find a really great piece on the public option and what it would really mean for hospitals. And be sure to check out our rundown on the debates and where the candidates stand on the issues you care about. No matter what happens in the elections, healthcare will change next year. Find out what you need to know about and prepare for by visiting advisory.com slash 2020 elections. I want to spend some time talking about the election itself, and I think it's important to remember that this is not simply a matter of Trump keeping the White House versus a Biden presidency. I'm not going to ask you to bet on an outcome, but I do want to play out a couple of hypothetical scenarios that I think our listeners need to be prepared for as it relates to health policy. So let's say Trump does get reelected and the status quo approach that we've seen for the last four years continues. The Democrats keep the House, but the Senate remains Republican as well. What policy priorities do you predict from a second term Trump administration? Well, I I like that you caveated it up front about not making predictions because reporters have, we've learned our lesson collectively from 2016 about staking out too much ground. I I know the issues that some Republican senators want to push. Again, a lot of this is going to take a backseat to COVID. But let's say that Trump wins, we we are in status quo land, uh, and COVID is resolved in the, or at least reduced in the near future. There is still a big concern about surprise bills that does cross party lines. That was something that we thought was going to be much more of a focus this year, could be resurrected. Uh, There continues to be a lot of interest from conservatives on cracking down on abortion access. Mm -hmm. And if Republicans control the Senate and can keep confirming judges, it will make it that much easier to get challenges to abortion rights through the courts all the way up to a court that looks like it's going to be 6-3 uh, conservative majority and, and might well strike down, if not Roe, then the laws around Roe. Uh, and then I also think another big focus from Republicans might be trying to uh, continue these alternatives to the Affordable Care Act, these other health plans. This was a big focus early in the Trump administration, the short-term limited duration plans, Some of these plans have been challenged in court. It's been controversial because these plans 
public health experts argue are not as comprehensive, don't cover as much, they're cheaper, it's easier for patients to be stuck with big bills. And yet there are lots of Republicans who continue to argue that we need more options that aren't the ACA. And I think that will probably be a priority for Republicans to keep pushing on. Leaving aside the kind of status quo approach, let's talk about what the world could look like if Biden were to win. Again, I don't think there's just actually one scenario here. So let's say that Biden wins the White House, the Dems keep the House, but ultimately are unable to flip the Senate. What are actually the regulatory options on the table for Democrats? That's such an interesting question. Uh, I, I would point back to all of the regulatory moves that Trump himself made the past four years, where HHS was able to roll back either pieces of the Affordable Care Act to make big changes to oversight. The Trump administration, for instance, launched a conscience and religious freedom division of its civil rights office. That's something that they didn't need Congress to help them do. Uh, and, And that office, which was pushed by conservatives who thought that religious liberty was taking a backseat to issues like abortion rights. That office is something that Democrats are not fans of. And I could see the Biden administration unwinding this new office mm-hmm. or, or finding ways to minimize it. I also think the Obama-Biden folks have been very keen to pick up some of the threads from the last administration yes. on expanding coverage. And could there be new regulations that allowed Democrat-led states to do state public options or to make expansions and coverage that were stymied by the Trump administration. So those are some of the regulatory things that I could see moving forward and would would be possible through the power of HHS in the White House. Mm -hmm. Now let's say that there is actually a true blue wave. The Democrats take the House, the Senate, and the White House. There, we're probably talking about some bigger changes to health policy. What are you thinking? Well, I think the changes go well beyond health policy. I mean, if Democrats take Congress back, there's probably going to be a change in uh, the ability to use the filibuster. Um, There there is also lots of talk and the fact that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are dodging the questions, but a lot of talk on expanding the court. Well, let's talk about that, actually. So because this is interesting and, and this brings me to it's not just three scenarios, right, in the world that there is a blue wave, but the decision is made to actually change the makeup of the court. I mean, from a legislative perspective, what could that mean for changes to healthcare? Well, let's look at it this way, Ray. So the Trump administration came in with its own aggressive agenda on healthcare and pushed things through like Medicaid work requirements or changes to uh, protections for transgender Americans. Those changes were immediately challenged and worked their way up the legal system, ultimately rising in some cases to the Supreme Court or will soon be at the Supreme Court. If the high court is overwhelmingly conservative, it makes it that much more likely that the Trump administration's aggressive actions will be upheld. If the high court is somehow weakened in its conservative bent, if there are two new or three new justices appointed by Joe Biden and the court doesn't have nine members anymore, it's got 11 or 12, it's going to be much harder for the court to uphold the Trump administration's bold changes 
And then if Joe Biden and his team end up pushing through their own progressive changes in the next couple of years, they will almost certainly be challenged too, just like we saw all these legal battles over Trump's regulations. And what the high court does, and whether it's a conservative-leaning court, whether it's more moderate, whether it's much bigger than it currently is, that will be the final say in many respects on what Joe Biden and his team are trying to do. So I, I feel like we can't undersell the importance of what happens with the high court enough because Joe Biden, Donald Trump, they can push all these regulations through. They can craft ACA part two. But if the Supreme Court ultimately finds against them, then the regulatory impact is going to be very different than what either administration would want it to be. I think that's right. So I've got another kind of wonky scenario for you then. Again, let's say that there is a true blue wave, but the Supreme Court ultimately strikes down in some form the Affordable Care Act. What's the next move for health policy from the Democrats? Oof, that, that is a good one. Um, good one is in good question. I'm not endorsing that scenario, to be <laughs> clear. I, I think it would depend on a bunch of things, including timing and how seriously would the court strike down the law? Would this be striking the entire law? Would it be striking part of the law? Again, when Amy Coney Barrett was pressed about the ACA in recent days, she repeatedly hinted that she believes in the presumption of severability. Yes. So the mandate could be struck, the rest of the law preserved. And someone like Chief Justice John Roberts has already signaled he believes in that too. So if the court finds against the ACA, it's really hard to think of a world, not, not that it couldn't happen, it's really hard to think of a world where the whole law falls yes. and Joe Biden walks in with Democrats and they've got to either craft a new ACA, a, a more expansive set of coverage, uh, or they try and make regulatory changes to preserve the ACA. Congress could still make a minor change, presumably, and address the mandate issue to effectively defeat the legal case against this idea. Meaning that it would be, you know, you have to pay a dollar, right? Which makes it a tax, nominal though, which essentially defeats the argument before the Supreme Court. Exactly right. Like all Congress would have to do is make this minor change, politically unpopular perhaps, but it would preserve coverage if the ACA lawsuit is all that we're thinking about. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're talking a few weeks before an election that could be drawn out for months, depending on what happens with voting. And if the president or Joe Biden, though most likely the president, chooses to contest, what that would do to legislative options for Congress, we have no idea. I mean, what if we're still fighting about who's going to be president in January and the Supreme Court has rendered a verdict on the ACA? Like, everything might come to a halt. So I, I I don't want to prognosticate too much just because we're in such unusual territory. Um, I actually I had a question for you because I've been listening to your podcast, much as it sounds like you've been listening to mine. So you've now done, what, like over 40 of these? What do you think you've learned about being a podcast host? Well, practically, what I've learned about being a host, meaning being an interviewer and trying to solicit ideas from other people, uh, which is odd for me, is just how important it is to to shut up. 
how important it is to be quiet and to let people uh, sort of breathe and think through, you know, how could the future of healthcare be impacted? What I've learned from interviewing 43 people about the future of healthcare and the thing that frankly gives me the most the most hope in in my dark moments is that more innovation has happened in our industry in the last 8 months than I've seen in my 6 years of being at advisory board. And on my hopeful days, it's when I'm thinking about pushing that pace of innovation forward. And on my worst days, it's thinking about the fact that that pace of innovation could slow down, perhaps even screeching to a halt. And, and that's what I, what I think about when I reflect on, on these episodes. Wow, what an inspiring answer from the Advisory Board podcast host. Uh, she, <laughs> she looks beyond each episode. <laughs> Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming back to your roots and coming on Radio Advisory. I'm going to ask one final question. It's one that I ask in every episode, and that's what do you want our listeners, the healthcare leaders listening to this podcast, to focus on in these two weeks before the election? I cover Washington. I talk to people in power and and positions of influence. I still worry a lot about the people who don't have access to microphones and don't have their stories told. And in the weeks leading up to an election, it can be very easy to forget those people with ground level problems. There's less media space to hear about the person who's been suffering from long haul COVID because we're focusing on what Joe Biden and Donald Trump are arguing about. But that's that's where I hope health leaders are, are focused on those people in their communities who are at risk, who don't have resources and who depend on hospitals, on community health centers for so much, jobs, healthcare, security. And that's that's something when I was at the advisory board and, and for my perch now, I continue to think a lot about how much rests on hospitals and their roles in communities across America. See, there you go. You've left us with your own inspiring answer. Way to bring things full circle. Well, it's a real treat to be back with Radio Advisory uh, and, and to see everything that you and the team have done. So congratulations. Thanks, Dan. I usually spend this part of the episode summarizing what we've talked about, but two weeks before the election, it feels like there's nothing more important to tell you than to just get out there and vote. It's hard to predict what's going to be happening with health policy. But no matter what happens in November, remember, we are here to help. First, I, I still need to ask you why the advisory board dropped the the. I think it's, it's like, you know, the Facebook, it's just cooler maybe without the the, but that's still weird to me.